Hey everyone, I'm your host Amanda and this is Light It Up. I'm rejoined by Max Halden for When the Lights Go Out, our final part in this podcast series covering how the profession and light keeper life ended. In this episode, we cover the fallout from the inquiry and the impact on the light keepers and the lighthouses. Max, we've just left the heaviest content for last in this part, haven't we? Yeah, it's true. It's sad. I mean, end of the podcast and also end of the era for the lighthouse keepers. Fitting a little bit too real. I almost wanted to, you know, leave the listeners in the happy land of people's reflections as if light to keep lighthouses and light keepers were still alive and kicking. Oh, well, you never know. We've still got one more episode after this, right? <laughs> you never know that, yes, the last episode is called The Future, so maybe I've got some secret intel from the Department of Transport about <laughs> future lightkeeping. Oh, my profession. God, keep listening, folks. <laughs> <laughs> keep listening. Watch out. Um, but just reflecting on, you know, the previous episode and this report that effectively heralded, sorry, this report that effectively heralded the end of a profession, the closest I've ever come to losing a profession or job is, believe it or not, in a prior life, I worked at Video Easy, RIP, and Target, RIP. pretty much RIP. Had envisioned myself becoming a store manager one day, but alas, it was just not meant to be. What did you think of your Video Easy job? I'm so curious. Were you watching movies in the background the whole time? Did you get really bored of the trailers constantly playing on the TV screens above you? Yes. The repetitive trailers that repeated themselves every two minutes did get a bit grating, but it also meant I was very familiar with what was coming up. Sunday afternoon shifts were fantastic because it's the end of the week. People are returning their DVDs. They're not hanging around the store. Not much to do. We just sit there, watch the movies, put the uh, put my favourite movie on. Pretty sweet, pretty sweet view. That does sound good. I mean, I did also have a, one of my jobs was uh, I worked at a slot car store. Um, <laughs> slot cars, also known as scale electrics, are like those little toy cars that go around on electric tracks. A bit of a relic of a bygone era, but have been maintained, I guess, in similar way to lighthouses by a very passionate group of um, people who absolutely love them, grew up with them in their childhood as the latest and greatest technology and, yeah, still still survives today. So um, certainly not the, um, you know, the big ticket item that they once were, but there's a dedicated group that still keeps it going. It's great to see there, uh, yeah, keep it going, Max. It's an inspiration for all. Maybe I should have tried harder with the DVDs. Video easy. And, uh, video <laughs> <Yeah>. easy. <laughs> Also, side note, did you know that Netflix actually went to Blockbuster to sell them their online streaming product and Blockbuster and I guess Video Easy were just so big that they said no, they just didn't see, as you said before, the writing on the wall. Yeah, uh, I'm sure there's a Blockbuster uh, CEO somewhere who is (laughs) very, very, thinks about that probably every second day. (laughs) As they as they watch their Netflix and Stan and various other online streaming products that they're good about. You would just never get Netflix, no matter how badly you wanted to watch, you know, uh, Singles Inferno or uh, whatever, you would never get it. Too true, too true. And as I think about, I guess, what jobs that exist now but that might not in the future, will all kids get the opportunity to be a checkout girl or boy? Or even a tennis girl or boy, given the way that they're automating uh, 
automating the calls and replacing, you know, grocery shops with distribution warehouses and robots. Yeah, it's true. Although, I mean, you know, how I'm, yeah, I understand you're a little bit nostalgic for your uh, Target and Video Easy jobs, but wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if uh, our next generation of kids are spared the, you know, ignominy of having to swipe groceries across a barcode scanner. <laughs> We're saving them from that. I'll talk to you saying that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the value of hard work, blah, 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 and all that. But, uh, yeah, I personally would be very happy to spend my teenage years doing a little bit more Netflix and a little bit less beep, boop, beep. <laughs> Maybe they'll be coding instead. Maybe that's what the next job will be. That's exactly right, surely. Or, um, yeah, that's just, just training the robots. <laughs> just training the robots. Yes, you're being replaced by the robots, but now you're training them, so that's probably even better. You're too right. Anyway, to recap where we feed last episode, there was the 1974 Summers Report, which highlighted the importance of navates, but that light stations could be demand. Department of Transport accelerated their demanding. And by 1983, the inquiry formally recommended the unmanning of eight and lesser manning of 33. So in this episode, we hear stories about the fallout from this saga, the impact on the keepers and the impact on the light stations themselves. Interestingly, there was mixed sentiment amongst the people involved in the light housekeeping industry at that time. There were the hardcore keepers who've been around for decades, obviously incredibly emotionally attached to the lifestyle and the way of life. But later persons I actually spoke to who joined within the last decade and who, as you say, probably saw the writing on the wall, had similar sentiment and were empathetic, but had their eyes wide open and realised it was inevitable and were quite matter of a fact about it. So let's have a listen. Those hardcore keepers and people who rude the day of the inquiry they were a great way of life that's gone now and I get very despondent. Uh, I think a lot of people um, are bitter. They were treated, um, you know, when, when the demanding started in earnest in 19, I'd say from 1985 onwards, um, there was a lot of bitterness because Basically, when it comes to the automation and demanding of lighthouses from when it started in 85, and it was all about the dollar, really. The, the, the last lighthouse keeper in Tassie was, was John Cook, who, who started on Tasman when I was acting head keeper there and ended up being the longest-serving lighthouse keeper in Tassie. Uh, he's still alive, but he, he spent a lot, a lot of time down at... Um, uh, at Matsuika and at Cape Bruni, and uh, so he's uh, he's the last of the Americans, and so, and he would have come out in seventy six or seventy seven, uh, and has never really recovered from it. I don't think uh, it was his life, and uh, he didn't want to leave. But anyway, there you go. I've been to Cape Otway, taken friends down to Cape Otway to show them where we we used to live, and at one stage I was appalled at the state that the place had fallen into, and then Cape Shank, oh, I cried there after the light keepers had been taken away. It just fallen into into ruin. Fences fallen down, buildings dirty, not hosed down to get all the dirt and the salt and spray off them. Neglected, sad remnants of what they were. 
it's really hard not to be swayed by the emotion and the sense of loss of these keepers. If I think as we've re- reiterated through this process, particularly Max, now you're invested in the light keeping industry and uh, <laughs> with your newfound knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. It would be really sad to sort of see that that end. And and because it was such a it was such a lifestyle, it was all encompassing. It was it was you know your job, but also took up so much of you know what what you did even outside of the hours you were being paid, you know. And so in the automation of so many industries, you hear these stories. Um, I think at least the lighthouse keepers in many ways are quite fortunate to have a broad range of skills that could be applied in other industries. But it's, um, it's yeah, hard not to be moved, I agree. We've just touched on something actually that's just occurred to me that, you know, we've talked about being emotional and sad over the loss of way of life and lifestyle. But I actually think the bigger the bigger point and probably where the emotion is coming from is the loss of identity where mm. these people identify as light keepers and now they can no longer be or around what they have always done. And I think that's maybe where the loss comes from. Completely agree. But as we know, new things come along and we move on. Well, automation was always going to happen because um, you always want efficiencies in your operation. So as soon as it became practical to automate the small lights, so from around about, uh, well, in some cases before, but let's say around 1920, the 1920s were the period of mass automation of small lights. And even some of the island lights got gas as well where they could do it because it was so much cheaper than having um, two or three keepers. To step back, lights have been demand since the 1920s. An invention by a Swede, Gustav Darwin, who received the Nobel Prize for Physics for his developments in acetylene in 1912. Uh, His developments led to the ability to mass automate uh, particularly small lights and beacons. And it came at a time, uh, and of course his research was driven, by an incredible need because ships were much faster uh, and much more prolific uh, as we got into, you know, the 1900s. Um, and we needed that invention. It, w- it was really needed and it allowed the mass automation. So cut the cost of operating lights. Um, it also meant that you just didn't need, you know, the physical uh, input that you required for the older lights. So the Dalen system and the gas system uh, was rolled out into nearly all the small lights around Australia, for starters. So all your little lights got uh, what's called day-on flashes and sun valves. And that that allowed very cost-effective operation of those lights. And when uh, day-on flashes started to be rolled out you know, in the mainstream, which was from about 1919 onwards, bang, it was automated. Cottage was removed, gone. And that happened to many, many, many of our little lights. In fact, um, there's few cottages left around those little lights. It's just about all gone. Uh, I was just looking back at um, the captain uh, extract that I was going to quote you. It stated basically that we had something like 400 lights and it was required at that time, in 1915, we had 104 manned lighthouses. That's phenomenal. So you can imagine the overheads on that. So this is where we work towards uh, reducing 
the uh, occupancies of these uh, lighthouses being so remote, particularly like Booby Island, it's so remote to get there and supplying all this equipment um, and families and fuel, fuel food, etc. So this is why the transition occurred. If you think of it, human resources was uh, probably a cheaper option in those days. Uh, getting to those places would have been the cost and uh, servicing them. So what we're going into is a new era for automation. Uh, and so this was reducing our costs by not needing people there. But at the same time, we had to revise, obviously, the lights and how they affected in navigation. So, yeah, I, I can understand that it would have been quite emotional because the, the bonds and the, the uh, people content were stronger and now we're moving to more a technical side to help support and to reduce those overheads in a way that um, uh, technology does move forward. So, yes, it, it's it's interesting because you're coming from an era where people are bonded and rely on that connection to being a way of supporting uh, the Australian navigational aids to now coming and say, okay, we're stepping over the mark. We wish to reduce the cost, bring it into automation and bring it more into a technical work where it can be, uh, uh, let's say, more dependent uh, to uh, being reliable. During the time I was there, the um, decision had been made to, to turn the lighthouses into automated uh, locations and the Lighthouse keepers were being removed from lighthouses piece by piece around Australia. And South Solitary being an expensive lighthouse to maintain, it was one of the first to be demanned and automated. And during the time that I was there, the conversion was taking place from being a kerosene light to a solar-powered light with its own electricity. A lot of people associate have a different association with lighthouses where, where we, as it's older folks, um, it was part of our job. Um, now, I've been associated with lighthouses both now for 50 years. The mechanics of lighthouses have only been mechanics in the 20 years, 20, 30 years, I think, there was mechanics always at the lighthouse at Macquarie. When we, were, when we were told we had to leave, well, we all knew there was something written on the wall that automation is here, to, is here and... That was it. We become redundant, like any other sort of manufacturing or servicing industry. You become redundant. It's not needed anymore. And there was already automation going on prior. Um, Port Stevens was one of the first lighthouses that was a man station that was automated that I can recall in my, in my period. That was done in the early 70s. Then, of course, South Solitary Island, which was done in 1975, Christmas of 75. Yeah, Christmas of 75 was... Um, demand, and then all the other stations followed suit. Um, now we did the automation in Montague Island, um, then Green Cape, um, Point Perpendicular, Sugarloaf Point, and Byron, of course. It's a, quite ironic. I turned the lighthouse off for the last time in June of 76, and then it was automated the next day. Oh, wow. Tell us about th that moment that you were, you, know, you literally flicked well, the switch off. You didn't, uh, you didn't really associate with automation. We, we associate a lot with automation, but you didn't think it happened to Macquarie. But Macquarie was put automatic because uh, all the old lights were going automatic. 
it was pretty hard to get us out. Not that we didn't have had any other opportunities. I, I suppose we all had opportunities, but we we enjoyed being there. In the early days, it would have been a job for life, but um, technology and modernisation and uh, that all changes everything. Doesn't matter what you what you've done, everything changes in life. Yeah, when I think about the modern day application of that, it's the same. It's a similar story, right? Technology it's, comes along, changes the te- needs. Technology. And- Look, in the old days. If I was doing a calculation, I'd use a slider or not a calculator. <laughs> yeah. We, we use logarithm, logarithm uh, registers instead of a calculator, things like that. It was crazy. Modern technology, we didn't have that. It, it did change. It did change. Electronics and what have you changed and applications and computerization. That did a lot to lighthouses. They were using, they were using, um, um, what was it? It was a, um, they could operate and check each lighthouse, monitor each lighthouse electronically. That's towards the end. They knew which light was out. In the old days, what would somebody would say, oh, the light's not on tonight. How come? Um, so you get a telephone call, so taking points out or somebody getting their heads out or something like that, and you can respond to it. It was only the general public that notified you the light was out or shipping. People didn't like the idea of lighthouses being unmanned, but it was... It was foreseeable. When I started in the job in 75, my job was only temporary. I thought, okay, one or two years. Now I had 14 years, so I did pretty well, but we did a fair bit of automation in 14 years. It was just, I suppose, a necessity. It was a, um, the government had to spend money to get the lights maintained, the salaries of light keepers and technicians and what have you. It was a pretty big sort of a payroll they had to pay out. They weren't getting any money back from shipping. Unless we forget about our Cape Ship crew who were the 150 or so men who would crew the Cape Ship, so the Cape Morton, Don and Cape Pillar, who would go around and supply the lighthouses with whatever they needed as well as ferry the families around and actually do maintenance on all of the navigational aids around and as you would expect once the lighthouses no longer need families or supplies the cape ships themselves unfortunately became redundant let's take a listen to steve best uh well no we've been totally decimated the australian maritime industry it's a very political uh situation and on the other on the other side of the coin you've got uh vessels become far more modernized so you you need less crew um, that's on the cargo ships. You might only, the crew, uh, the one I'm on joining probably on Friday, will only have a crew of maybe 20. Some only have crews of 12, 13. Um, you only have one to a watch. Uh, back then we used to have two to a watch. So there's a lot of negotiations between the unions and the companies back in the 80s and the early 90s to demand ships, making, um, not upskilling, it's making you more, uh, you can do far more things. So, Max, I mentioned before we're going to hear about the people fallout, as well as the lighthouse fallout. What do you think happened to the lighthouses themselves, the buildings, given, you know, the disagreement over who was going to pay for them and take care of them? Yeah, I mean, well, we still see them today. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the volunteer groups that maintain them today. So I wonder if they just fell straight into the hands of volunteers. You are definitely on the right track, Max, and that's probably what's happened with most of the lighthouses because of the lack of funding and government interest in them, but the volunteers are there to fill the gap. But 
what the Commonwealth government did, and the Commonwealth government was the one that owned the lighthouses, they actually sold the lighthouses to the states and or national, uh, sorry, and or state park associations for them to become responsible for the lighthouses and the grounds around them because that navigational aid need was no longer there for the entire property. I believe AMSA has kept ownership or at least use or is responsible for the lens themselves because that's the bit they deem they need. But the rest of the property is up to the states to maintain it, as we know, with government budgets and whatnot. I can't imagine lighthouses are high on the priority list of uh, state funding at the moment. No. And so it's left to those bodies to um, to take care of them. And as you mentioned rightly, the volunteers came to save the day. So let's listen to this. Some of the lights are still maintained by AMSA. Um, they do the painting and the repairs on it. Other lights have been handed over to government, government organisations like National Parks and whatever. They do the maintenance and repairs and the, the, keeping the areas clean. So I don't think you'll find that the older lighthouses will fall in disrepair or become um, eyesores. They'll still be part of our, our national, our, our history, I think. 70s, for some reason, uh, were not very kind to heritage buildings and lighthouses especially. They were just not considered worthwhile. A lot of lighthouses and buildings were destroyed. And like, for example, there was uh, Cliffy Island uh, in Bass Strait. Uh, the, the lighthouse keepers, I mean, admittedly, they were not the greatest. You know, they, they were not the greatest uh, value. But anything which is that um, old should be kept. So they were burned down uh, on purpose. Um, then Tasman uh, Island, for example, uh, the lighthouse was automated, the lighthouse keeper's cottages, which are beautiful, got neglected. No one lived in them. They, they, they were like stuff stolen from them. So they just left, left the uh, time and erosion work on them without any maintenance. In the 90s, when the last couple of lighthouses were decommissioned in Tasmania, I mean, Matt Cycle was 96, and I think Bruni was somewhere around the same time. They were decommissioned. When AMSA got, didn't want the lighthouses anymore, they handed them all back to the Tasmanian government for a dollar. So all, all, the, yeah, all the precincts and all the lighthouses were given back to the Tasmanian government. Now, the problem is the government had no money or anything to maintain anything. So they had all these lighthouses and all these precincts. What happened with AMSA, they actually lease the ones that are being used back again. So Tasmanian government, Parks and Wildlife own all the lighthouses and the ones that are still operating, which are all automatic, are just leased back to AMSA. And all they're responsible for is the light. We actually own all the lighthouses. Some of them started, uh, like Matt Syker's got three houses, Tasman's got three houses, there's two houses on Deal Island, uh, there's a couple of houses on Swan Island, etc., etc. With places like Matt Syker, it was a little bit different. Uh, they AMSA actually paid for a few years until, the, I think, 2002, 
and then they ask for expressions of interest through parks for people to go down there and be caretakers. In the meantime, a few people got together and said, well, we don't want to see these houses go to rack and ruin. Um, and they started up volunteer groups. Um, and you got like friends of Deal Island, friends of Matt Syker Island, friends of Tasman Island. We tried to start one for Cape Bruni, but the uh, head ranger down there was against it. So that sort of didn't happen. Although we still have caretakers there all the time. Without the volunteers and without yep. people like yourselves giving up your time and money yep. to maintain these lighthouses, yep. what would actually happen to them and what do you think the future they is? They would just the fall in, into disrepair and disappear. Some of the houses in certain places have already disappeared. Uh, with Matt Syker and Tasman particularly, we've spent a lot of money on Tasman on the houses because over there, when it, when amps are left, uh, it gets very windy there. You know, you're up to 100 knots, sort of 120, 130 kilometre hour winds. Two of the verandas blew off over there. Some of the roof went. And if it wasn't for the volunteers, those houses would have been disintegrated by now. But we've actually replaced the verandas. And this year, they hope to start on the back verandas and replace them. We're fortunate that we've got a good builder who runs his own business and he takes his some of his workers over there and works for nothing and oh. has, has done a lot of work because he's, he's, he's got a passion for it. Imagine yourself, Max, maybe in the shoes of a lightkeeper where, you know, sad times, you've got job losses left, right and centre. What would you do? Picture yourself in the end of a world movie. Would you be one of those people who try and save the world or at least escape what's coming and, you know, find the only pocket of society in, in the world that could survive whatever fallout is? Or would you just be celebrating your last hours on earth, you know, partying on a rooftop as the world is ending? What would you do? Uh, I'm definitely a, I'm a celebrator. I'm, a, I'm one of those people who's, um, yeah, just uh, drinking champagne, watching the, the meteor slowly come towards the surface of the earth. Love it. So you would have stayed in the lightkeeping profession till the end of its days, riding out the last, oh, yeah. uh, last moments. Absolutely. You would find me just, yeah, uh, half a bottle of rum in uh, dancing to Whitney Houston in the, um, in the, the, at the top of the lighthouse, I reckon. So good. Actually, that reminds me of a story we had in uh, part six of this podcast series where um, Roseanne Highland was describing the uh, sinking of the Neva and how, given the fact she was giving this story, she was one of the survivors who decided to not steal the rum and drink it in the sinking ship as it went down. But she survived, to tell the tale. Wow. Well, fair enough. Well, maybe, uh, maybe I'm, well, I feel like in this metaphor, I'm definitely the one that's going down with the ship. <laughs> Not a bad choice. I think uh, there's no wrong choice. You either die happy or survive and uh well maybe not so happy in this story what would you do mandy i think i would fight i like to think that i put up a good fight and moan about it afterwards but still be alive <laughs> i write that and way. hopefully and hopefully move on to another transferable profession <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know how transferable my light keeping skill set would have been, but I'm sure I would have found a way. <laughs> Where there's a will, Mandy, there's a way. But not all is gloom and doom, Max, in this podcast series. I know I was tempted to end this on a happy note. And on reflection, I will end this series on a happy note. I know it's uh, tempting to end it on the inquiry and the fallout, but as you said, there is one more episode where there is a light at the end of this tunnel. Oh, you've done it again, Mandy. I can't wait. Thank you firstly to Ted Pierce, Lance Wilson, Rob Trezise, Peter Shirk, Neil McAlpine, Ian Clifford, Steve Best and Don Felberg for lending their voices to this episode on The Fallout. Thanks, of course, to my co-host Max for this epic penultimate episode. Up next, we continue with the very last episode of our final part in this series called When the Lights Go Out, The Future. Thank you for listening. Light. 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 House. Lighthouse. Lighthouse. Thanks for having me on your show. I've been a long time listener. I really love your work.